You are now approaching the Game Master's Prism. The Game Master's Prism is a podcast where we look at role-playing game design from different angles. I'm your host, Richard. I'm your host, Ken. I have a great interest in old, out-of-print, and pretty weird RPGs. And I'm also very happy to talk about the classic sword and sorcery and fantasy styles of D&D or Tunnels and Trolls. I've made a study of horror role-playing games, but I'm also fascinated by the current trends and development thoughts in independent role-playing games. Now we'll take a look at what's in the prism today. So welcome back to the Game Master's Prism. This is part two of our short series on difficult topics in gaming. Last time we talked about M.A.R. Barker and Empire of the Petal Throne and his unfortunate association with uh, Nazi-related novels. And so last time at the start, we had a short disclaimer on Lines, Veils, and the X card. Uh, just a content warning on this one as well. Given the nature of what we're talking about, we're going to get into racism, sexism, and some unfortunate things in history. Uh, this one shouldn't be quite as in-depth on some of that, but uh, we wanted to let you know. All right. right so this time, unlike you know usual episodes, we're, we're recording this right after the other, and it is a part two. We don't really have any sort of fun opening here, like what have you been playing and all that. Because it's all the same, we, you know, Elden Ring and and Thirteenth Age and and uh, Troika and whatever else. Be sure to check out the first episode if you haven't yet. That'll be the one right before this. Any other uh, anything else about the last episode you want to mention before we get started, Ken? Uh, just the, so last time we talked about how like these ideas matter, right? Because like you know. People say it's just harmless wizard school fun, but then JK Rowling is helping to support anti-trans regulation in the UK. And then other countries look at the UK. Uh, and so I'm sure some of you were going to the comment boxes to be like, but what about HP Lovecraft? Well, this is the episode where we talk about what about HP Lovecraft and what about some of the other um, aspects of the history of role play games. It's not, we're not trying to be exhaustive in the next hour. I know there's more to it. There is a lot to talk about on this topic, but we're going to talk a little bit about the ones we know a fair bit about and the ones that seem most relevant to uh, kind of compare and contrast, right? Historically with M.A.R. Barker and with like aspects of games that like I have run and that I love and that also have right. their problematic we'll, we'll aspects. Right, we'll touch on Dungeons and & Dragons and, and as mentioned, Call of Cthulhu and fantasy genre and various other things along those lines. Ken is much more of an expert on Lovecraft than I am. I will mention I probably know a little more about Robert E. Howard, who there's some similarities to there. Um, yeah. So right. Oh boy. I mean, it's 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 not. It's like a whoa. Okay, it's not for the episode. It's like oh yeah. uh, man. Uh, this isn't this isn't quite as fun as like uh, Ken and Richard reminisce about the '90s and playing uh, RPGs on message boards, right? This is some where like there are difficult aspects to these games we love so much, and so like 
when I talk about horror, right, uh, horror has been described as an irresponsible genre, which I think is a good description. Um, because it's an irresponsible genre, it lets you talk about things that society doesn't want to talk about. Like, you know, teenagers want to have sex. Like, you can actually talk about that in a horror movie. But then when you filter that through the 80s, it's like, and then they die from that because a, a man in a hockey mask stabs them. They're like, well, maybe maybe that's not great as a, mm. as a commentary. Um, today we're going to talk about like part of that with regards to fantasy. And so fantasy is a lot of fun. It's a huge amount of uh, enjoyable experiences for like books, movies, uh, so many role-playing tables across the world. But I think when you have stuff like the M.I.R. Barker come out, you have to also engage with the fact that like there are regressive or even harmful ideas that easily can be bundled along with fantasy. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, there is a troubled history there. You know, something that comes to mind right away is that the fantasy genre... Well, you mentioned this last time. There's an element there at times of like the past was better or the past had these really cool elements to it, which might be super cool magic. It might be the super cool technology. It might be there was a good king, but he's lost power. And how do how does he come back into power? Right. And sometimes these are pro-colonialist or I don't know sometimes things paint with a very broad brush as to like who's bad and who's good and and, and sometimes they're kind yeah. of like pro-monarchy right or pro-chosen one right what defines the chosen one is it that they stepped up to the plate or is it that they're born from the right family and again these ideas are fine in isolation but like they don't exist in a vacuum and so that's one of the things like I wonder about to go back to our start from the last one, like Elden Ring is like, do you want to become the Elden Lord? You know, we need a monarchy to come back. It's from software. So I expect it to all end poorly. But like that, that idea of like the land is yearning for a chosen one. Hopefully someone who's kind of like a king, right? That just is a very common I think with idea Elden Ring, fantasy. it's more about your character choosing that. But I don't know. It seems like you're not really chosen as a, you're not really a chosen yeah. one. It's like you have potential and then it's like, do you use it or not? Like, I don't know the guy's name, but there's that guy in the, the round table hold who like, he doesn't trust you at first, but then he comes to trust you over time. And I, I hope that's how it is because that's actually one of my favorite things as a quick aside about some of the other from software games is it's, uh, like in Dark Souls, you're referred to as the chosen undead. But as far as I can tell, the thing that makes you special is mm -hmm. that you don't give up. You don't give go hollow where other people do. And like you as the player are aligned with your character because you just keep going back into the fray until you get through. And I really like that. Like that to me is a good story of a hero as opposed to, well, you had the right parents, you know, so you can you can cast the right family magic right i know you mentioned star wars uh in our discussions not in the podcast and i think star wars does this in a in a sort of an interesting way maybe a strange way um i think i i don't do you find star wars to be pro chosen one and all that because i feel like it almost isn't but it is later maybe 
It almost yeah, isn't originally, so, and then it kind of becomes. This is one where we. Yeah, I think Star Wars is a difficult one to discuss because you have people fighting over the wheel uh, of the car, right? So the car's like all over the road. And I don't just mean that about like the the last three movies. I think that's something that happened even in the original trilogy where like Lucas directs and then someone else directs because Lucas like had a heart attack or almost had a heart attack. And so like, I think just that like, it's about this. No, it isn't, um, is just key to Star Wars, which is me dodging the question a bit. But I think that tension between is it about a chosen one or is it not um, super key to, right. to Star Wars? I do think like Rise of Skywalker ended up more on the chosen one side, which was no, it absolutely favorite. did. But The Last Jedi went in the opposite direction. And I think the first Star Wars movie, uh, Star Wars or A New Hope, kind of is like well he's just anybody and he luke you know and he kind of looks like a buffoon right he he talks about like well i can shoot because i went and just shot random rats in the desert you know and it's i love that so much right it's like it's like so much from the midwest like yeah i can take down you know that death moon i used to shoot like (laughs) possums like obviously it's everyone else is embarrassed but then he no, does it's it. funny yeah um so i don't know like and you know and then he has the force and all that but because i've heard people describe star wars and they've said what's well, like you know it it felt like i could be luke or i could you know be a jedi uh and of course luke is you know related to darth vader and all that but then we have the prequels, which are more about the midi chlorians and more about the, the the chosen one. But then it's like, is that even a positive aspect? Is he the cho- is the is this prophecy true or not? Right? Um, is something I think about. And this isn't a Star Wars podcast, but it's it's all, that that's obviously a big yeah. Yes. Is that what you said? <laughs> I don't yeah, know enough I'm, about I, I Star Wars to to go on about it for uh, that long. But uh, I, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> However, I I think that speaks to the point actually for the rest of the episode, which is can people see themselves and their characters in like a fictional universe, right? And that's like it's important in something like a movie or a book, but it's essential for a role playing game. A role playing game has to be able to support people, um, like understanding how their mm. character fits into the world. And I think for a various set of, of characters fitting into that world. And so that's my that's my transition, I okay. think, out of Star well, Wars. Yeah, so, you know, this is uh, something we, we talked about in the past. Uh, and and uh, we have it here about how, you know, the the Dungeons & Dragons... Well, you want to talk about D&D or you want to talk more about the, the fantasy aspect or, like, the overall fantasy aspect? Let's let's just talk about fantasy for a second. Um, with like, I think the idea of the the past world that was better is incredibly mm. compelling, right? Anyone who's gotten older knows that feeling. <clears throat> um, but that idea of looking back to the the blessed past or the like the past where like people were mm. mythically great is not a totally politically neutral statement. It's something that's like really glommed onto by particular political movements. And so last time we talked about Barker, 
and his connections with neo-Nazi groups, and that idea of a, especially when the past is mythical, um, that kind of path, that is a strong recruitment tool for like fascist movements that, um, you know, in the past people had strong morals and it was an age of virtue and we've got away from that with like degradation and, and dissolution and stuff like that. But like this, this is the same language and it's uncomfortable when you find it in a fantasy novel as you're like living through people saying this, um, on, on social media. And so, like, I just want to get that out of the right. way. Up no, front. I mean, it's it's definitely there, right? We have the Nazis going, oh, remember the age of the, the Teutonic Knights and all this. Or uh, the the Nazis right. in Italy, remember the Roman Empire, right? They used uh, some of the, symbol, the symbolism. Supposedly that Nazi salute is like a Roman salute. I don't really know that. Um, I think... The Teutonic Knights are a good example because, like, the history no, doesn't absolutely. have to be true right. if it's convincing enough, right? And they picked and chose, right? This from Odin and this Teutonic Knight and all of this stuff. Um, it's better than what was real. It's more. Right. It's when we see that with fascism, right? The the flashy uniforms in the in the Nazi uh, in in Nazi Germany, right? Um, and yeah. You know, and 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 that's like a big element of it. I mean, it's even in Star Wars to some extent, right? The uh, the like the cool look of the Empire sometimes people go on about. Like, I mean, they also look kind of like buffoons sometimes. They can't even shoot a guy. But um, you know, it's like wow, look at Darth Vader or something. I mean, Darth Vader's maybe a complicated character, but it's like it's there, right? Like the look how cool and fashionable they're being but it's it's kind of a, a, a hiding or just the name of yeah or the name of stormtroopers right before star wars what did people think of with stormtroopers like it's a description for nazi right. soldiers like that's what the word meant um and so these things change over time and that when they crop up in fiction it's not harmless it's worth talking right about, right I think. um yeah, so, uh, I mean, so, you, you know, you have a thing about the wilderness and the frontier, and I think that's a really good uh, point. This is pretty relevant to RPGs, this is pretty relevant to fantasy as well. We see this this idea of exploring the wilderness, yeah. of course, is a West, wild, like the Wild West idea, the Age of Discovery. These aren't exactly innocent time periods. I mean, no period is really, but um, very bloody periods, right? Yeah, and this, like, you know, you, I, I took some history courses in undergrad, but I'm not presenting myself as an expert on it. Like, you're studying it right now. But, like, if you look at Dungeons and Dragons, <clears throat> there's sort of a problem if you view it as a historical document, because, like, it, it's not really historically me, uh, medieval, uh, though it looks that way, right? It's got all the trappings. It's got castles and swords and knights. That's all medieval stuff. But the culture doesn't have, like, an uh, extremely powerful church at odds with the state authority, which is one of the defining traits, as far as I understand it, of the medieval period. What it instead has is this opportunity of the frontier which is way more an idea of like the mythic American West, the idea of the Western, where you strike out 
into the West, and there are like there are people there who don't well not even people, right? There are obstacles uh there who who don't want you to do that. And so like this is the tension if you go back and watch a lot of Western movies, right? Is that the the portrayal of Native American people is uncomfortable to modern audiences. And yet, like that idea of like you strike into the frontier, you strike into the unknown and the potential there, but like savage humanoids will stop you. There's more of that in Dungeons and Dragons than there is like the concerns right. of medieval, medieval people. Whoop. I'm Go not ahead. saying well, I was gonna say yeah. medieval people. I, I'm not saying Medieval people, you know, would, go, would, they were staying where they were because the wilderness was extremely dangerous. There could be bandits there. There could be right. an enemy army marching through. You could just starve to death or get lost. Or, I mean, obviously they didn't have roads and cars. I mean, they kind of had roads, but not like you weren't driving your, you know, your sedan through the Black Forest. You were like, oh, I'm lost and and bad stuff is happening. And then, um, like the that's a time when the like the the myths and the stories of a age a past age that was golden, right? Who built the roads, like the Roman Empire? That makes sense. That's historically accurate. Then, right? The aqueducts and the stuff people don't know how to make anymore. And I think a lot of fantasy stuff does come out of that. Um, makes sense from there's a medieval some debate as to how much they knew on how to do. Um, I can't speak okay. super specifically about that. But people do, if you do delve into that, people do bring up like, you know, the Dark Ages weren't really as dark in terms of knowledge as they might appear to be. But yeah, I mean, there is, I, th I think there still is kind of this yeah. mythical thing, right? People were still writing in Latin, at least the church people were, and the church was doing most of the writing. I mean, they, they knew how to write. They kept up this writing culture. And we have this idea of the 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 savage peoples from ancient Greece and ancient Rome, because in in that situation it was people north of them. Uh, it was the barbarians, right, who couldn't talk right. They would say they the idea is they would go ba ba ba. They, right. They're not talking in in an understandable tongue. Um, it, supposedly, this is what I've heard. I I. I probably have to do more research on this, but I have, I had heard someone talk about like a, a scholarly person talk about how, um, in ancient Rome, there were considered like three, you know, going back to this idea of the, the race and all this, there were three like races of people in ancient Rome. There were, uh, whites or like sort of the, the standard Roman person, which is like sort of middle Mediterranean kind of individual. And this included people from Asia, people they encountered from Asia. There were people who were black, which is people from like south of Egypt. And then there were blondes, which is people from the north. They weren't considered white. They were considered like sort of, you know, the, the questionable people. They don't know how to talk right and all this. And we see... Uh, right elements of this in the rhetoric of Plato and the rhetoric of uh, uh, Cicero or Cicero's people might say and uh, you know this idea of like if you 
if you are able to talk correctly and enunciate things, you are more human than these other people who can't. They are not part of civilization, so to speak. They are part of this questionable land that they, they don't know how to talk right, right? And, you know, it's, it's kind of weird, but we see this same thing in fantasy to some extent. I don't know how much they are literally going, oh, a Roman, you know, philosopher said this or something, but uh, it's, it's it continues. I mean, we can see a... Something I've learned, I have this rhetoric class I was just talking about earlier. Um, something I've learned in this class is you can tie a lot of, in a very broad sense, you can tie some aspects of colonialism and imperialism to these older uh, philosophers because they were saying, you know, these people don't count as human beings. Now, this isn't necessarily unique to those people. I mean, I think that's kind of, unfortunately, maybe too common of an idea. This the us versus them idea, but uh, I mean, as you're saying, we see it in the the Europeans and the 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 indigenous people of North America and South America. Yeah, and then like I was I was just like awkwardly trying not to get to that too early, but the thing is like that's the thing about the frontier, right? Is that somebody already lives there, and it's the indigenous people. And that the Western genre, uh, as it as it exists originally in the U.S., is like those people are an obstacle. You know, like they're savages. I don't think that, but that's how those stories are framed. And um, like, I think it's something that keeps coming up. Um, if you, uh, I really like the writings of uh, David Wong. He wrote John Dies at the End, and then the second book is called This Book Is Full of Spiders. What? Seriously, dude, don't touch it. He talks about the psychological idea. It's it's a good book. Uh, reads weird after the last few years, but he talks about the psychology idea of Dunbar's number, um, which is that like people aren't that good at understanding like large numbers of other humans, oh. and that you've only really got space in your brain to think of like 150 um, other people as people, and past that, it's just kind of noise to you. Like your tribe can only go up to that many people. And I'm sure there's caveats to all of this, but I feel like that's part of what's tying into this, right? Is that you have a us and you have a them. And like you've got up to 150 us, and then you've got the untold legions of them. And uh, it might seem like we're belaboring this point, but I think it's a really important one that like this is a, a structure of stories that extends from at least like, you know, the Romans up until oh, John Wayne. And I would argue until yeah, the John Wayne, day. I was reading some pretty bad stuff about him lately but uh this isn't uh yeah i knew some of those aspects but just to mention you know sometimes the people involved with these things are also doing bad things they do represent these they, they're living the 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 role they're playing sometimes um but right. yeah um oh go ahead but just real quick like i think I think that was a good point that you made that like the medieval hero isn't really there's like the courtly love stuff but like that comes later that kind of noble knight um the person who goes out into the frontier and wins renown and comes back into town with treasure that feels more like a western character like a western movie character to me than it does someone out I think of a medieval it is story in uh, the crusades because 
when the Crusaders returned, okay, they brought new inventions with them, like soap, that like the Europe from what I understand that like the Europeans did okay. not have, and they brought you know new ideas, and we also have of course like Marco Polo and stuff like that. Um, so I don't think it's unique to westerns. Uh, and I well, I don't think you were saying that, but I I don't. I don't know if it necessarily comes from that. We also do have the idea of, uh, you know, the, the Knights of the Round Table, right? They go, they're trying to find the Holy Grail. They go to these other places. We have the idea of Gilgamesh, and he's significantly older than the other stories. Right. He is trying to find immortality. So he swims across the, the sea and all that. Uh, we have the biblical stories, right? Moses escapes from Egypt and... um. You know, there's a lot of other stories there. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't know. Despite being a, a Catholic when I grew up, I, we never read any of that, so I can't really tell you a lot about it. But, uh, you know, we also have, you know, the, uh, the guy in the whale. I can't think of his name, but oh, um, Jonah. That's it, Jonah, uh, Jonah? and the whale. So we uh, yeah. like I think these stories are there. Uh, Robin Hood, of course, that's not really his journeying across a, a, a area. Uh, and another aspect where we, again where we do have this is of course the age of exploration, right? Cortez goes to Mexico and he comes back with all this gold, you know, and he fought the evil villains, right? The evil people that were already there. Look, they were sacrificing people to the the evil deities and all that. And that's very explicitly part of the thing. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, we maybe even have the Vikings a little bit. Um, the Vikings sail to Ireland, destroy mm -hmm. churches and, and enslave the people. And it's, it's similar, but it's not in, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a white on white crime. It's the <laughs> Oh, you have like the, yeah, the, the yeah, yeah. warrior, uh, or the original, the original novel by Michael Crichton is like Eaters of the Dead. Like it's like, well, it's you know Vikings versus ghoul creatures, right? That's just a, a good time for everybody, and that's like, and that's just a rewrite of Grendel, um, Beowulf, yeah, you know, yeah, or Beowulf, um, yeah. Grendel is also sort of a rewrite. I really like the John Gardner uh, interpretation, but that's a different aside. Um, so yeah, I think like, I think if we pull the camera back a bit, right, there's always stories of people fighting monsters, of people going places and coming back with treasure, right? And like, there's a reason that it's still fun to get together in our basements or in front of our computers and like tell these stories, right? It really resonates with people. And so I do want to be clear. I am not trying to say that like everybody who sits down and does a beer and pretzels or soda and pretzels uh, game of, of Dungeons and Dragons is like, you know, complicit in some kind of like cultural genocide or uh, something. Uh, yeah. Like you haven't bought into um, colonialism just because you want to play a game with your friends. But if you really want to make sure <laughs> that you're not touching on some of these things, we got to talk about them. We got to think about the aspects that might be more colonialist or might touch on these right. historical so, ideas. Oop. And so I think like, uh, yeah, uh, you, you know, some of the ones with classic. Well, that is one I was going to bring up. So module X eight. Uh, so that's, uh, expert, uh, D and D modules so is basic and expert, which are 
more uh, continuations of original D&D, not of advanced Dungeons and Dragons. You can look up that if you want to on your own time, but it's module X8. It's called Drums on Fire Mountain. So if you look that up, you're going to see an unpleasant cover, in my opinion. This is pretty well established as an unpleasant cover. Yeah, it, it's, it's some racial stereotypes. Well, they're orcs, it's, right? It's not great. And they are portrayed as sort of a... Yeah. Not really a specific culture, but kind of like vaguely like pan-African, like this sort of like white idea, like Western idea of like an African person like tribe an african tri- tribal tribesman or something yeah uh or like a like again like someone from a mesoamerican culture around the time of like the medieval period in the west or you know uh, maybe like a polynesian person or a hawaiian person or something like that and yeah it's not really uh, i actually own that module and it's like oh boy wow you know, I didn't think it was that weird when I bought it, and then someone brought that up later. It was like it was like years ago, and I was like, "Man, that is kind of bad." And like I've been, you know, and whenever I see it, I'm like, "Oh boy, that one." Yeah, but I think that's part of the conversation of this because, like, you don't it was think just it's normal, bad, right? When you right? first encounter it, because you don't have context. Yeah, exactly, and that's why I think it's important to talk about it, <clears throat> and so. Like, that brings us, I think, to the ideas of, like, Robert E. Howard and to Lovecraft, right? Who are historical writers. They're writing in the early 20th century, but they are hugely informed by their thoughts on race. Um, And so, like, for anyone who was, like, going to the comments last time with, like, Ken, what about Howard? Uh, whether it's H.P. Lovecraft or Robert E. Howard, well, this How, is the point where we Howard. talk about it. So, like... Just straight up, yeah, just be careful of Howards in general. Um, Lovecraft was super racist. I'm not going to make any apologies for that. He was racist for his time. Yes, I know the name of his cat. No, I won't say it on the podcast. Like, it's unfortunate. Um, But I think, like, some of the art he made was still interesting. And I think some some of his fears about, like, race speak to broader stuff not i am not worried about miscegenation you know however you say it it's not a word i worry about but the interesting thing about lovecraft is that his terror about like what if god doesn't exist what if the cosmos is huge also what if um these racial ideas are just like uh bouncing around some aspect of that weird spitball of all the anxiety also fish are terrifying he is right? he's like, terrified of <laughs> lovecraft has a lot things. of things <laughs> yeah some of the stuff that comes out of that is pretty compelling and like and much like barker who we talked about last episode um lovecraft said a bunch of anti-semitic things then he married a jewish woman um these things don't add up and like he was extremely kind and generous to fans who wrote to him that doesn't excuse his other behaviors. It doesn't erase them. But like, uh, it's hard to simplify human beings down to single things. And so that's where I'm at in terms of Lovecraft. But it doesn't mean that he wasn't racist. And that's one of the things you have to engage with when it comes to talking about Call of Cthulhu and talking about this kind of fiction is that some people 
unfortunately, are just in it for the racism. And you've got to be aware of that if you want to deal with Call of Cthulhu. And so uh, we mentioned real briefly last time, like Jeff Grubb had this idea of like reinventing uh, a fantasy or a concept. Uh, in his case, he's talking about it with the like periodic destruction of things within uh, Tecumel and the Empire of the Petal Throne. What I find, one of the things I find most interesting about Lovecraft is that intentionally or not, he writes some of those outsiders so compellingly and like with this mixture of revulsion and sympathy that other people can step in and add those uh, perspectives. And so like the outsider is a, it's a really just um, very Poe-like, but not as good as Edgar Allan Poe type story. But it's a story about someone who goes through like a whole progression and then discovers at the end, they're the monster. Spoilers for the more than a hundred year old story. But this thing where Lovecraft thinks that the minority or the like mixed race person is the monster is something that others have used as a jumping off point since then. So um, there's more of these products than I can uh, spotlight, but I want to mention some of the ones I know. So like uh, Harlem Unbound, written by the excellent uh, Chris Spivy, is about black populations during uh, in New York during the times that Lovecraft writes about. And so it's like, what about these people that are sort of sidelined or villainized by Lovecraft's writing? And let's give them their time, let's give them the respect and the, the time um, that they deserve to be talked about. It comes up in short fiction. Uh, Elizabeth Eyre wrote a story called uh, Shoggoths and Bloom, which draws parallels between the created life forms, the Shoggoths, um, and like the experience of former slaves and how they might wow. relate to one another. Um, there's a whole collection. Yeah, it's a really good story. I highly recommend it. And so like this is the sort of thing where people are taking uh, Lovecraft's flank, frankly racist ass ideas and then reinventing it in a way that like might really upset him and i say power to them uh there's a whole collection from um uh the publisher golden goblin called tales from red hook the horror red hook i actually don't know much about that one not great it's not a good story it's very problematic it's got a lot of like if you've seen the like sound bites of uh, Lovecraft racism, and there's plenty of them. But there's a bunch of stuff about oh, like swarthy yeah. foreigners congregating and they don't oh, have boy. jobs. Like it's bad, right? And so, um, Tales from Red Hook is written by uh, like minority, underrepresented, and non-binary, and those kind of folks to inject their perspectives into a, a mythos that actively didn't want them. Which I think is fantastic. Um, another series, I've only read the the novella that goes with it, but there's an Innsmouth legacy story by Ruthana Emrys, which is a more sympathetic take for the Deep Ones, the like semi-aquatic uh, fish people. Um, and then finally, like there's a movie that uh, the the really great YouTuber H Bomber guy talked about called Cthulhu, which takes that same base story of the Shadow over Innsmouth. And makes it a commentary about like, well, what about LGBT identity? What about your family rejects you? And spoilers, your family is fish people, but they also don't like you because you might not be like, you know, uh, just straight, right? They want you to breed as part of their fish people cult. And like, 
weird. It's weird, messy discussions. But all of these people are, I think, building great art and telling their stories on this like shaky uh, quicksand type foundation of Lovecraft's racism. But I think like that's something you can do. You can, and this is going back to that Jeff Grubb idea, you can take something that's problematic and then you can make it your own. I couldn't do it when it comes to something like Echamel. But other people are doing this to great effect. I've been talking for a while, so I'm gonna I'm gonna right, let you uh, well, interject. When you were talking about the um the outsider, right? The outsider interpreted well the I'm talking about the outsider as a concept, right? The the heroic outsider. Um uh, often. Yeah. Yeah, but Lovecraft has a story it's just yeah, straight I do up think called the outsider. I, I will just say I do prefer to avoid spoilers, um, just generally. But I think we differ on that viewpoint. Mm. But, um, okay. But sorry, most people don't. I, I think I read it and story. I didn't really like right. it. That's part of his like trying to be Poe era. Yes, it's one of his very early. I'll try and. Well, I think we can discuss things better. without being really obvious about them. But uh, I don't know. Well, whatever. It's neither here nor there, really. Um, more thinking about the other story where you're talking about the pe- the the family was fish people and all that, but maybe that's the maybe that's the hook, right? I don't. Oh know. yeah. But um, I don't. Yeah, I don't consider okay. that. A you said for that spo- one, that's fine. Anyway, yeah. okay. Uh, getting back on track here. So the heroic outsider. I was actually just writing about this. Going back to my rhetoric class, I'm doing a a uh, report on Logan Paul, actually. So, are you, you're familiar with Logan Paul to some extent, Ken? Well, he, you know, he, yeah. he is sort of a controversial figure on the internet, but he has a lot of fans. And I think, you know, he did stuff like film himself in a, in a forest with someone who had committed suicide and the, the, the corpse of the person who committed suicide. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's a whole yeah, yeah. forest known for that. Like the whole like, incredible. Right. It's not like he just that. walked in like, oh, my gosh, this crazy thing happened. It's like, why are you doing that to begin with? Um, and he did, you know, he's done other stuff like he I, I believe he like tasered a rat or something. It's like, what the hell? Like, you know, and and he's just sort of he relies on this controversy. Right. And. I think to some extent people look at him as like a heroic outsider because they're looking at him and going, Oh, you're breaking these, like, not like these, you know, what we might say are like major, like taboos, right? He's not like committing murder. He's not like committing like rape or something. He's not even like assaulting somebody. So I think to certain people, if you're like a teenager, you're like, Oh, he's like going against like the, the norms. And so I think, I mean, I know when I was a teenager, it was like, oh, it's there were like, I, I don't think I was a particularly edgy teenager, but I think every teenager kind of experiments with edginess to an extent, because uh, you're trying to understand, like, who are you in the world? How what is how does the world react to me? Kids do that, too. Right. And. Right. You know, and I like I talked about Blade of the Immortal. Right. And uh, part of that to me was like. Oh, he has like this swastika on his back. Well, it's not a swastika. It's a manji. Well, it's not really bad. I mean, it's not 
like legitimately, but it might remind somebody of something bad. But to me, it was just like, well, I can be like, look, it's not actually that like, it's not actually that bad. Look, I'm like clever and it's kind of edgy. So it's like funny. It's not like it's not funny, but it's like cool or something. It's like, I don't know if it is. I mean, it, it's different in Japan, of course, but it's kind of weird, like looking at that now. But uh, but it, anyway, getting slightly back on track with The Outsider, it made me think of Robert E. Howard because some people uh, well, because I think right. he himself was kind of an outsider. He didn't. I don't think he felt like he really belonged. I think Lovecraft felt that way too. Uh, I think we see this in music scenes. I'm. Yes. I've been a part of like noise-related scenes, as I mentioned. I'm not going to get too in depth about that, but um, something we do see this though is uh, like in the Conan story, the Phoenix on the Sword, and this is a story about Conan. This is the first Conan story. Conan the Barbarian. He had just become king. He had killed the old king on the steps of the throne and he had become king. And the idea is he's kind of, he is kind of this upsetter in this situation. He's changing, uh, the, the, you know, stuff. It's chaos versus law or whatever. And there is the, Oh, he's okay. There's this character named Thothamon who is a Stygian wizard and he's trying to regain some things he had lost uh and and like do things um you know that that will bring him like back into power and some people view him as almost this it's kind of like robert e howard is toying with like maybe toying isn't a good word but testing like well can a black character be a hero or a not a very like right. non-white character right um and and I and you know and he did that with some other ways too with uh, Queen of the Black Coast and there's kind of a sidekick which that's kind of questionable but there's kind of a well that one's kind of questionable I guess but there's kind of a a, a magical black guy um, in Solomon Kane who's portrayed as heroic but it's kind of like a he's the magical guy you know which is a a trope that is a difficult one. Um, yeah, I don't know. So there is, I, I think there's elements of that with Robert E. Howard as well. And of course, Robert E. Howard dealt a lot with this idea of like peoples who degenerate, you know, degenerate in his words into like savagery or whatever. And this goes back to that idea of from Cicero and from, uh, from, from Plato and these other Roman writers who were saying like, you know, these people aren't like on our level. They don't speak correctly. They don't, ha they don't, you know, do the correct things. Um, there was a big issue where it was like the Northern people don't wear, they, they wear pants and that's like, that's like disgusting. Right. Why would they wear pants? It's funny now. Right. But it's like pants, pants were yeah. illegal in Rome. Yeah. Because they represented those Northern people. Yeah, that's wild. But yeah, so and and I don't know as much about Howard as I'd like to, like just putting that out uh, right away. But so that idea of degeneration is and de-evolution is one that comes up with both uh, Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft. And I think it's worth noting for the people who don't like 
read too much about these 1920s writers. Like they were pen pals, right? They were friends, um, partly because uh, uh, Howard wrote to Lovecraft after I think the Rats in the Walls, like, hey, your like your version of Celtic that you got out of the Encyclopedia Britannica is oh, crap. Wow. Here's how it should be. Um, like they they well actually at each other, yeah. But then like they became friends from that. Um, and so, like, they're existing in the same sphere. Like, they're existing around the same time period. They're both, like, I think, like you said, they're outsiders. They're unhappy people who are looking for identity in their fiction. And, like, uh, I haven't read all of Conan. I haven't read The Phoenix and the Sword. But, like, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure for me. Because I like some of, I really like some of Howard's writing. I also really hate some of Howard's writing. And so that's the the surprise every time you start a story is like, is this going to be a good one? Like uh, Queen of the Black Coast, where like there's a surprising amount of agency for the woman character. Uh, but there's also definitely some racism, or is it going to be like, uh, I, I forget the title of it, but it's like, it's like a werewolf story in Africa where the slaveholder merchant is Whoa. the sympathetic character. And you're like, no, they actually aren't. I'm, I'm super happy they died. Right. Wow. Like, I never read Howard, that. Is that a Conan story? What is that? I'm not, no, no, it's not Solomon Kane oh, either. It's like a standalone. Yeah, he wrote some, I'll, I'll look it up for you. But, but like I don't, I don't have it. Or like sports stories. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's one of those and like it's it's not a good story narratively but it's also really indefensible in its politics but like i'm gonna be real about it i really enjoy some conan stories i'm also not gonna excuse right the ones one like i'll that. recommend you two i'll recommend um, you oh wait, go ahead that's right but i was just gonna say yeah um the fun ones are really fun. The ones that aren't. Black Colossus are really is one of the most eerie stories I've ever read. It's not about a giant black guy. It's it refer it references no because that was a okay. that was a worry I had like reading we... it. Is it going to be like the big black guy? No, it's not like that. It actually does not. Ref That's unfortunately one of the subchapters oh, of Herbert no. West Reanimator is that. So like, yeah, like. Lovecraft, no. Well, uh, it doesn't but actually refer to a continue. guy at all, but it's it, that's like one of the creepiest stories I've read. Like this one line in the story, it's like this little subtext, and it's like, what? Like what did I just read? Like what was that? Like that that story is really good. Another one that's kind of interesting, but maybe has elements of racism is what is it called? Pools of the Black One. Lots of black things here i don't know oh okay but uh this like yeah i mean you mentioned back on our our um the barker episode right the mix of sci-fi and fantasy and i really liked um the, oh, the yeah. tower of the elephant which has this like element of and i'm not gonna spoil it i've taken that to heart but like there's an element of what i would call science fiction mixed in with that and like uh one time uh Pat, if you're listening to this, you went way off script during the Pirates Dungeon World game, and I just ripped off that story because it's a great story. It's a great hook. And so I just ran you through parts of that because it's it's a very compelling uh, fantasy set, right? You're trying to do something a wizard doesn't want, and you have to go through their magic yard. Oh, the it's pool really of the black one. That's what it's called. Uh 
Okay. Yeah, I don't know that one. And so I think this this speaks to the broader point of like you can have really good points within stuff that is also problematic. Yeah, a problematic one, uh, the Frost Giant's Daughter. Though it references a Greek myth, which is also probably a problematic myth. Um, Okay. Yeah. It's basically just Howard copying a Greek myth that's about a man trying to have his way with a woman. Yeah, um, I have to look up a story. I made a note in our in our document about how like Howard is obsessed with the idea of racial degeneration, and he works that into right. the serpent. People. It's kind of a Lovecraft um, thing, and too. like, like as a yes, and they traded this. This is a specific D&D, thing they traded the back and forth. They traded names back and forth. Yep, the Wanty grow out of this. But the idea is that, like, the Serpent People were once great. It shows up in the Lovecraft collaboration, The Mound. Um, and, I, like, I watched Conan the Adventurer when oh, I was yeah. a kid. Like, I like the Serpent People. But then you, you go back and you discover this idea where Howard is just like, well, they were once great, but they devolved or, due to their dissolute culture. And you're just like, oh, boy, this is... Like, A, as a, as a biologist, just talking about de-evolution, like, that's not how that works. But B, like, it has a lot of really judgy and racist well, and connotations to it. Well, and of course, the, uh, the anti-Semitic and, um, Yeah. And so, like, I can't remember the, the particular story, but it manages to hit both the de-evolution and, like, a reincarnation of Conan not being that big on consent, like just like, oh, this is not a fun story. It doesn't. It's not the fun kind of. Um, so of course Robert there Howard. are. Well, do you want to talk about Gygix and how D and D took from this, and then we'll talk a little bit about response, other responses to this. Yeah. Yeah, and so like Gygax writes Dungeons and Dragons in like <clears throat> the seventies, and like it really it really sinks in based on like Gygax has read Vance and Howard and Lovecraft Liber. and like uh, uh, he hates Tolkien, Tolkien as well. He hates Tolkien. Yeah, Liber. He does, but, right. but he knows it makes commercial sense to incorporate Tolkien. But yeah, I don't. I don't want to erase Fritz Leiber. Let's let's throw him in there. Who who's fantastic? Like uh, Fafford and the Grey Mouser, right? Um, really great writer. But like uh, uh, Gygax introduces these ideas of like race, and and the fact is that like when Tolkien writes about race in like the the fifties, that reads differently than it does to us now when we talk about race. And when uh, even when Gygax writes about race in the 60s and 70s, that reads differently than it does now to us. But there's no point in 2022 to pretend that it doesn't land differently, right? If you're talking to people about like, well, this if this race breeds with this race, you get a half, you know, X. That sounds pretty strange to me. Like, not as a biologist, just as a person, right? Nowadays, but that's that's a thing that like it does come from Tolkien. It does come from um, the the media that uh, Gygax is consuming as he's writing. I think D&D. it um, it especially becomes weird when we have this idea of like the monolithic uh, people. So in D and D, I mean, it's not in every right. setting, like. 
Well, it's still kind of there, right? Like Forgotten Realms has like specific like you know, this is a weird word too, like sub races of elves and stuff like that. I really I really don't like that word. And 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 just like as a brief aside, like I've seen that many other like smaller press um publications have struggled in trying to find words to replace race with, right? I love the game fellowship. It replaces yeah. race with people, right? So the orcs can be a people. Um, and that takes away some of the like biological thing that gets uncomfortable. Um, I think that's a good idea. I think that's a thing people yeah, should it's, be thinking I mean, you want to say species, but that sounds too like sciency, like too like futuristic. It sounds exactly. It sounds clinical, and like also, uh, biologists will argue like very much about mm. what constitutes a species. So like, it just doesn't sound right for right, a fantasy right. setting. So because I've I remember there was a guy I went to high school with, and he was. He would say species, but he he really was really into like the Star Wars D20 game and like D20 Modern and Star Wars D20 did say species. But that's well, that's kind of a weird topic, I guess, because is it is it sci fi? I don't know. It's more of a fantasy setting. It's like space wizards. But nevertheless, like, you know, he would say that and it always seemed weird to me. It was like, well, I mean, I was like, I agree with what you're saying, but it's still it doesn't aesthetically fit. But race is a very weird word for that too. It's like, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not like first off, race as I've already mentioned is not really a. It's it's just a cultural thing. It's different depending on where you go. Right. You made the point about like what the groups are in Rome, right? Like, I think race is about as immersion breaking a species but people are more used it's, uh, to it. that that's a weird element and then you know you mentioned the half races and all that and it's really weird when we have this idea of like the human is the norm and the human in D represents off like just sort of like anybody like it could be a black person it could be a white person as right. we think of this in you know 2022 united states it could be uh you know, somebody that really doesn't represent anything similar to the modern world. It's weird when you have the human presented as just like, there are human cultures, but then we have the dwarf is like, maybe not exactly monolithic, but quite close to it. Um, it's like a dwarf is a dwarf is culturally a dwarf. A human is culturally part of their kingdom or part of their ethnic group as a human but a dwarf is a dwarf like a dwarf is always obsessed with drinking alcohol a dwarf always right. has a long beard i mean unless it's different and they love gold and, and gold there's maybe a weird yeah. jewish analog from tolkien that i read about which is uncomfortable but um yeah you know and and you know the like there's always this kind of element there for a lot of things i think orcs in recent memory of recent ideas sort of change a little bit they become more like humans where they have maybe more specific cultures but dwarf and elf are like maybe elf goes a little more towards humans as well because i think people love elves but like especially dwarfs dwarfs or dwarves i don't know tolkien is dwarves but uh you know the dwarf though is is a very much like this monolithic yeah. almost culture 
And it, it sets a weird tone. It, it does. And then, right. So like, I think it's a weird tone when you have like the dwarf or the, the gnome, right? Like right. they're always like this. And then you get oh. to the monster manual, right? Where it's like, and then here's the drow, right? Here's the ones that are always catechy. And like you mentioned orcs already. And like, even when you go back, like uh, Warcraft, they struggle with like, why are the orcs always evil? Right. And they work that into the plot. You can, you can come down on how, you, how successful you think they are. But like, that's part of the dramatic tension of War, Warcraft. Um, but boy, does it feel weird, especially to me, right, to run something like the Drow, where it's like, no, they're always evil, right? Or even, it almost uh, sets that out more when you have characters like Visit Jordan. It's like, he's the one good one, you know? He's the one Drow you can trust. And you're like, I have many questions about this. Like, what you're saying about, like, people about nature versus nurture about society all of these things and like you know i'm encountering this as a high school student i'm not equipped to answer any of these questions but it feels weird it just it feels well something i think is interesting actually about r.a salvatore's writing is that he portrays the drow as kind of being a group of people who none of them or most of them really are not comfortable with their roles they live in i think um, it's like a, a, a yeah. disguise they have to wear and do wear. And I think like, that's one of the more interesting takes on the drow. Um, I think he said he partly based that on the idea of like yes. Italian crime families, which can still be kind of stereotypical, but I think it's a pretty interesting take on the drow. And it's part of the reason, like, I'm not, I'm not taking this time to like bash on Trisit Jordan. I flip and love those books during during high school um but i i do think like that someone taking that thing and running with it and making it more believable for what it's worth i don't take any offense to italian crime family things because i find it to be terrifying <laughs> but yes uh, uh, boy when we do when we do the white wolf episode though uh, yeah uh you know it, it's creepy i Cosa Nostra, our thing, right? That's kind of a little disturbing. Yeah, but like that's not the entirety of like you know the Italian experience. Well, I, it is kind of crucial to. Well, um, they're not going to get into think, this, but there is. I think crime. I think gangs are a very large part of immigrant culture because it's 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 yeah, an element I, I of creating a safe that. situation for like, your group um, that often is not pleasant yes. with the the other uh group at large and and you know but it's it's a weird it's weird it's it's a weird thing especially to look back on like you know a hundred years later or something yeah and with that in mind i'm gonna circle back real quick to a lovecraft thing um like i talked about all the good stuff that's been built on these shaky foundations of lovecraft and and like there's a lot of saying like Lovecraft wasn't that good a writer, right? All this stuff of like, oh, it was indescribable <laughs> and stuff like that. But like the concepts he does, like they still resonate with people. Like there is something there. Um, in the same way that people are like, you know, like Tolkien's not that great a writer. They it's journeyed. Like, well, we'll and do they it journeyed. again, right? No one's been able to do it again. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to make fun, but like it's hard to reproduce. With Howard, his mighty hue. That's not me excusing Lovecraft's <laughs> 
Yes, uh, the thews. He also likes to yes. compare to either panthers or wolves. Um, his favorite. His thews were like a panther, but yeah, um, but the the oh, chocho, no. right? Like I've got. I didn't even know about college. this before you like, mentioned as a group. As a group, yeah, and it's better that way, frankly. Like uh, Lovecraft writes about this idea of like the Chocho, which are often written in later Lovecraftian stuff, like including Call of Cthulhu, which I'm also not excusing, is like opportunistic cannibal immigrants uh, from Southeast Asia. Other tribes hate them. They're like smaller in size than other tribes. They're not human, though they look human. And it's just like so many layers of racism bundled down into like a Call of Cthulhu monster. And like, and just the whole thing of like a monster that just looks like a person, but it's okay to kill them. Like that's the Chocho. And like, I've seen, because I, I like Lovecraftian um, games, I've seen various games and properties grapple with this. And like, I like Delta Green a lot and I gotta be real. Um, one of the adventure compilations for Delta Green um, I forget what it's called. I think it's like it's called Reverb or something like that. But it's like the Chocho still exist as a distinct ethnic group, and they're selling drugs in modern day. And like, I'm sorry, you guys missed it. Like, you had a chance to cut out a super racist legacy thing. Like, you didn't have to publish that, and you tried to do your best. And like, I think you're all great writers. But you didn't have to, and that that's problematic. And I read it through, and and this goes back to our stuff about lines and fails and X cards. I don't run everything I read in Delta Green, and this is one where I was like, I am not comfortable running this at the table. I am not comfortable doing the investigation as people track this group of immigrants from Southeast Asia who are trafficking drugs. It just hits on too many stereotypes. It's too uncomfortable and it doesn't bring anything interesting to the horror. And so like, I think that's an example, like I super into like Harlem Unbound and the other kinds of things like that, that have kind of reclaimed and reinvented Lovecraft. But I think there's this constant challenge, right? Um, the, the story, the, the Innsmouth legacy is giving a more sympathetic uh, idea to the, the deep ones. I don't think that's right for every table or every story, but like, the Chocho is one where you have to take a hard look about whether to include them or not. And so sometimes I read the about Lovecraft in middle school, or I was actually in early high school. I never heard of Lovecraft before. I read about him on game FAQs. So it was often on game FAQs back then. And people were like, Oh, I like this. I think I read about him in middle school. I didn't really know much about until more until later. And people were like, Oh, I like this guy, HP Lovecraft. I like really dark fantasy, like horror stuff. And um, it was very interesting to me because it kind of touched on these like conspiracy elements, which I think I have like a, an odd fascination with. I actually hate conspiracy theories, but I have a. a... I do. Oh, well, now as well. That, that's fair. We talked about how there's a lot of yeah. an anti-Semitic element to them. Um, I just don't find them particularly believable often. Uh, but there's also what you just mentioned, and that's really bad. Um, but also, I find some of them kind of kind of I intriguing. But um, 
Um, not usually not with like the New World Order and all this kind of stuff. But the the uh, anyway, you know, so I found Lovecraft really interesting, and I remember reading. I I got three Lovecraft books from Half Price Books. They used to always have the cheap, old cheap paperbacks, and they were half the cover price. So I paid like 50 cents for them, 90 cents for them. Um, yeah, I got the, um, nice. the doom that came to Sarnath, the tomb. And there's another one. The other one is like almost two of them have like some of the same stories in it. The tomb is all the like post stuff. Um, maybe I only got two of them. And then yep. I bought another book that was like considered like a best of, which is weird. Cause he, I mean, they're all kind of, whatever somebody decided was worth putting in this, you know, the book they published because he was publishing for magazine. But, uh, you know, I bought, I bought some other book and, you know, and I, but I was reading the dream quest stories or the dream, dream cycle stories. And I read Polaris and I was like, Oh, this is such a great story. It's like the idea of the man and the butterfly, which one is the real person? This idea of like, what is, what is our perception? What is consciousness? And then at the end, he makes this weird remark about uh, indigenous people of, of uh, I don't know, Alaska, I guess you could say, Canada. It's like Alaska, yeah. Well, he and mentions it slightly earlier. But yeah, it comes off, it kind of is like someone just like sucker punches you. And you're like, what the heck? What was that about? You know? Like, do people address those kind of elements? Like, like that story. I, I guess the dream stuff isn't really addressed that much because it's it's often thought of as uh, um, Lord Dunsany style stuff. Yeah, it's considered lesser, but like, so I would I would recommend, even though like it goes back years now. Uh, I really like um, there's a there's a podcast called the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and they went through every uh, Lovecraft story that wasn't like um, owned by a litigious oh, no. family, because uh, there's a few he co-wrote that like the family would sue you if you talked about them for a while. But like they they read through Polaris and they had that same reaction. They're like, this is a good story, and then they got to the end and they're just like, what the hell, right? Like why did you finish the story this way? And they kind of like burst into like awkward laughter, but it's not like because the racism is funny. It's just like, did you feel the need to tell off like the indigenous people of 1920? And I think that's a really good example of like, um, and, and there's other Lovecraft stories that do this. None of them are particularly good where like the, the joke is that the last sentence of a Lovecraft story ends in italics there's multiple ones, um, not as many as people say, but more than it should be, where it's like, and it turned out that such and such was yeah. an ethnic minority, right? And like, that's supposed to be a shocking reveal. And it's the same in Polaris. Like, it's a crude version of it. But like, it's embarrassing to him as a writer. It's embarrassing to you as a reader. And um, there's good stuff in the dream cycle, but that, that's not one. Um, and I think it does. Yeah, drag and the that's whole story so. That's down. been an issue I've had with Lovecraft for a long time. Is uh, this is something I sort of came to realize? So going back to high school, I actually wrote a paper on Lovecraft, having not read any Lovecraft works, or having read like the 
the one about the moon and the the Efreet that lives in the moon or whatever. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, he well, he talks about, about the, the horned moon, moon and the the genie came down from the moon. It's like one of those dream cycle tales. I don't know what it's called. Okay. He wrote that, and I thought it was great. You know, and I'd read about Lovecraft, and I was like, "Wow, this is such a cool idea that the the weird alien." gods and all this and the weird thing is i actually don't find this particularly interesting now but it's maybe i ha i think it's kind of like this on we idea or, or something and i i don't feel like i really have that i have kind of a strong uh spiritual element to my person so i guess for me it's like it's kind of odd i don't know does that make sense it's called memory okay yeah, um, that's where Lovecraft gets you, honestly. Mm. It gets me, at least, is that he'll 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 hit these Poe-like moments where he has a really relatable experience. There's some of these for me in the in his dream stories, actually, and the ones about like the silver oh, yeah. key and Randolph Carter. But then he'll tie it in with this like really embarrassing or racist idea, and you're just like, well, I don't want to be associated yeah. with that. Um, and so, like, but like the thing leading up to that, like the, the he's got some great lines about like the the potential of childhood. Um, I think it's either Silver Key or Through the Gates of the Silver Key, and like how dull and prosaic with the poison of life we've become in adulthood. Huh. And like that spoke to me when I was a teenager, and like it still speaks to me now. I think like so you get some of the most genuine Lovecraft. Like he's really working through stuff in some of the dream stories. For well, better I, or I worse. actually derailed myself, I realized, but I was going to say I wrote a. Uh, I wrote this paper, right? Where I was like, wow, Lovecraft is like amazing. But I hadn't really read a lot of it. And I remember writing Lovecraft was racist. This was typical of his time, but I don't think it is. Uh, I think he was actually extreme even for he, his time. It was typical. Yeah. It was typical to be racist yeah. in his time, right? Let's get that out of the way. He was extra racist, where even people he wrote to at the time, because he wrote a lot of letters, were like, dude. Oh, they, they you're actually extra told him racist. off a little bit. Like, mm. uh, some people did, yeah. Because like he had an extremely wide and, and sort of interesting circle of people he wrote to. But like, yeah, he was extra racist. Yeah, I remember writing that, you know, and I wrote this paper like, Lovecraft is this hero of mine, because I'm going to be a writer. When I was younger, I really, and I do still kind of want that now, but maybe not in a, in a, um, fiction manner, but, um, you know, and I just remember writing that and then later kind of, it dawned on me, this is my interpretation of it, at least that a lot of Lovecraft's work, this whole fear of the unknown is often the fear of foreign people. It's sometimes it's the fear of the, for, the mysterious evil alien god or whatever but sometimes it's like the fear of the foreigner or fear of the almost like the non you know quote civilized person or the non christian person even though lovecraft himself was an atheist and that made me really uncomfortable um you know but there's also sometimes the fear of like the evil alien god or whatever but I guess there's a, a an atheist element there that yeah. I don't really understand. But yeah, 
No, I think you, I think you're right to respond to that, <laughs> and like, and so that's what like, I'm not ever gonna give anyone a hard time if they don't want to engage with Lovecraft, right? Because he's so problematic, and so much, and so some people, like the ones I mentioned at the top of the show, have found that as a jumping off point to tell yeah. their stories, and I think that's amazing. But there is no getting away from the fact that, like, the other aspect of the Wanti, for instance, in Dungeons and Dragons, right? They can disguise themselves as people like you and they come into your cities and all this stuff that sounds super racist. Like, the Wanti also draw yeah. from the or, deep. Or I'm, I'm a secret Asian. Um, and this fear of infiltrating the United States. Exactly. Secret <laughs> Japanese or Chinese spy or something, according to this old woman. Frankly, frankly, I'm not comfortable with this anymore. You know, I, yeah. you could be anything, <laughs> but yeah, like that kind of fear, that kind of fear that like you aren't what you appear to be. You could secretly be a serpent person or worse, a minority, an ethnic minority. You know, like that is it's baked into lovecraft it's baked into his fear i think a bunch of it comes from the fact that like he's a deeply unhappy person he wants to be like an english nobleman in a time when like his father dies of syphilis in an asylum and so he has to overcompensate for it so much but that doesn't excuse either right he was shitty um there's just no other way around it and so like if that shittiness outweighs the potential of his writing i think you should back away from that and the the truth of it is um well i find him a fascinating figure well i find a lot of interesting things in his writing like i myself am not running so many lovecraftian things mm. anymore so i mentioned like the mound earlier uh, and I think, like, the civilization described in The Mound is really interesting. Like, we're, we're getting near the end of our runtime, so I don't want to spend too much time in it. But part of it is, like, uh, The Mound has this idea of, like, what if uh, what if white people got colonized? That would be terrifying, right? Like, what if um, the aliens from under the Earth did a colonialism to us? And I don't know that he really understood that's part of what he was writing about, but I think you can pretty easily read that into it. And again, uh, credit to the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. They're great. They talked about some of this. Um, uh, but, like, he he sends a Spanish conquistador into this alien society, and then, like, he gets destroyed because there's something greater oh, than him. Wow. But it's in the same way that the conquistadors destroyed the... But I don't think Lovecraft's aware of what he's doing, frankly. Like, I don't think he always is. Um, I like The Mound as a setting. It's not a very good story, and I don't think Lovecraft's fully in command. Well, it looks like it was a there. collaboration. Um, and so that's... Uh, this lady? It is, with, yeah. I think, Zelia Bishop. Um, yeah. And then we can talk more about his collaborations, too, because that's a, it's a weird topic. But um, that's just a long way of saying that, like, I think Lovecraft has some interesting ideas, and I think they're ideas that resonate with people for particular reasons. But like, if you're not into it, I get it. And I think that's the bigger picture that I want to say is that like, you come to the game table to have some kind of fun, and the the type of fun looks different for different people. Some people want catharsis; they want the catharsis they get from a horror game like Twelve Candles, uh, Ten Candles. <laughs> I had two. Um, uh, some people just want the like kick down the door and and with your mighty monster, fears. whatever the monster looks like, and they don't want to think too hard. 
your mighty thews, like a wolf or a panther or a panther wolf, right? And I don't think there's something wrong with that. But I do think sometimes, like, people can get you into weird territory because you're just there to have fun. And that's what you got to be careful of. And, like, hopefully that that's what I've been trying to describe. Over right. The and so this. Um, just to briefly touch on some of these other... Um responses i think to this kind of behavior because we didn't really to talk about it. i know we're, we're kind of going in weird directions but um uh, of course we have michael moorcock changing up the sword and sorcery genre with elric who is intended as an the opposite of conan moorcock hates the idea of merry england or epic poo poo referring to winnie the poo he it refers to winnie the poo <laughs> technically but he yeah. doesn't like the idea of tolkien he says tolkien is is all about just being the comfortable English gentleman in, you know, in, in Merry England. But is that really a comfortable world? Right. Or is it the evil empire, the Melnibonean empire? You're the, you know, whatever, like bajillionth emperor and you're all messed up. And like, what the hell do you do? And oh, you come in contact with this soul sucking sword thing. And, um, this whole idea, you know, what? It's fine as long as you don't have any friends, you know. Like I, I haven't read that much Elric, but like, like they're great. Uh, they've got a strong flavor to yeah. them that's very different. And and then you know we have as, well. as mentioned the Iron Dream from Norman Spinrad, which is intended as a satire on the, uh, the the sort of pulp fantasy genre with, if you want to call it a genre, with like. The idea is Hitler didn't become the Chancellor of Germany. He became, he continued with his art. He became a writer and he became a painter for these pulp novels. And so he writes a novel called Lords of the Swastika. And is portrayed as like, is this that different from, you know, what is being published? That's a that's a daring thing to do, especially because of those things, <laughs> like the idea of the mythic past of the like Ubermensch, right? Who are the only ones who can put things back on track? Like, I think that's a. I haven't read the the novel, but I think like to write that is to try and right. I've been some trying to read things. it. I think I mentioned I never see it at the store. I'm probably just gonna buy it eventually. I try to avoid buying old books online because they're always way more expensive. But sometimes you got to do that. Um. Yeah, and then, right. you know, we do have some responses from 5th uh, edition in, in regards to this stuff. So they took the, you know, the racial, so to speak, racial bonuses and said, well, what if you can determine that? And this is something I like. They don't seem to tie culture so much to the character's race, just right off the bat. The change aspect I just mentioned is more of a later thing. It's in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. You know, the uh, the other element, they don't they don't seem to want to tie in explicitly the, the these as monolithic of cultures as some of, as the other ones. Like in third edition, you have the dwarven weapon familiarity. I don't think you have that in fifth edition, those kind of things. You might have a few things like that. It's a little it's downplayed, though. But the other element that some people bring up is fifth edition's just is fifth edition doing kind of almost like a tokenism thing or a superficial change because then there were controversy with wizards and some of their hiring practices and some of their uh the way they treated some employees 
And I think that's something to take into account. Like, how do we, uh, you know, how do you handle that? Like, how do you do something legitimately versus how do you do something and maybe just it looks like you're doing something? I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think that's an important question, right? Because it's easy to say the nice thing. It's easy to put up a post on, like, you know, Black History Month. But, like, Rainbow you got to actually follow through. Yeah, yeah. Hey, for anyone who's like blessedly unaware, rainbow capitalism is like when you put up the the pride flag, right, for a month, but you don't actually do things or uh, to to support LGBT people or other. It looks nice. Groups. There's probably some kind of element of like, um, what do you call it? Like representation, which is important. But I some like there's also an element of going a little beyond that and being like. How are these people actually being treated in society other than just like, hey, they exist. Like, well, I mean, you know, Hitler seemed to know Jews exist. He didn't seem very fond of them. So just saying, hey, Jews exist doesn't really, you know, but yeah. Yeah. So like, I think I think that's. I think that's a challenge, right? Within RPGs, I think it's a challenge within the broader culture. But like, we're RPG right. podcast. That's what we're more qualified to talk about. Um, and so, like that, I think, like, kind of closes us out with the idea of like, what? How do we judge what material to engage with? Right? That idea of I, I really like Polika's like three Ps of profit, prestige, platform. Right. And I'll be honest, like, it's something I think about when I pick what games I want to run at a convention like Gen Con, right? I want to amplify um, smaller creators. I want to amplify creators making games who I think um, they're doing stuff that hasn't been seen before. And so, like, I've run games for um, Arc Dream, for Delta Green. Uh, Well, I don't love the one Chocho adventure. Like, they were great to work with. I think Delta Green's a great game. Um, I've worked with Pelgrane. They were fantastic too. Like, but next time that when I'm comfortable going to a convention hall with like thousands of people, like I'm going to be doing smaller games than that, just because like that's what I think deserves more amplification. I think those two companies are fantastic. They're doing great. I'm happy to hear it. But I want to amplify some of the games no one's never ever heard of. That's just me yeah. personally. Um, well, my, the way I usually interact yeah. with something is, do I feel that the work reflects negative views or do I feel like the person is just sort of a negative person? I talked about Dragon Quest. I don't feel like Dragon Quest really... Dragon Quest is pr- maybe somewhat sexist, but it doesn't... I don't think that necessarily colors the whole narrative. Um, it just has weird, like, look at the look at the boobs or whatever sometimes. And um, it's kind of weird, but it, you know, I don't think like the views of the composer necessarily are reflected in the game. I don't think the game is telling me to like deny Japanese war crimes. Um, and I don't, right. and it doesn't seem to have much of an effect on anybody. Like, I don't see like, ru- like neo-Nazis flocking to dragon quest or like, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's different. I mean, maybe there are Japanese nationalists that flock to Dragon Quest. I don't know. That would actually make some sense because it is very much a, rep- a representative of Japan. So maybe there's something there. I don't live in Japan, so I don't I don't know what it, that's worth, really. But um, 
Like, and then talking about, you know, uh, Chinatown, but Roman Polanski and all that. When I watched that movie, I had no idea who Roman Polanski was. I'd never heard, oh, I th- might have heard that he had done, you know, he, do you want me to just mention what he did? Should I not mention it? I think, like, let's, a real quick content warning, right? Like, this is a it's, sexual it's, assault, like, um, it's, it's bad. Against minors. It's bad. He, he, it's bad. Yeah. Right? So, like. He raped a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. Uh, in a house he didn't even own. Yep. Um, and then the people came back and were like, what? The, like, wow. Like, but yet, then, you know, and he escaped trial. He ran away to like France or something. And. Um, like what? Like, I want to say something, but I don't I don't want to be too vulgar on the pocket. But like, wow. Like, yeah. Um, but. You know, the th- the thing that's really disturbing about Polanski is you still have these Hollywood actors and directors being like, oh, what a- he's great. He's innocent. It's like, dude, he. I'm pretty sure Jack Nicholson's girlfriend uh, saw what was going on. and was like, uh, no, he's it's innocent. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. N- just no. Um, now, again, you know, I liked Chinatown a lot. Um. I don't think Chinatown represents uh, uh, anything particularly related to sexism or rape. Um, something I do have a little bit of an un- uncomfortableness with that I, I haven't seen this is Rosemary's Baby, because there is like obviously there's a sex element to that or a pregnancy element to that. So that I don't know. It makes me a little uncomfortable. But I haven't seen that movie. But uh, I don't really like. Um, it doesn't sound very interesting to me anyway, but I mean, what I wonder is if I had known that about Roman Polanski and known he had directed Chinatown, would I actually have watched it? I'm not sure. Um, you wouldn't, I wouldn't. Right. And like, like I know that about myself. Right. And I haven't watched Rosemary's Baby. It's considered like a fairly foundational horror film. And I've watched a lot of those, but like knowing, I didn't know that when I saw Chinatown, um, I quoted it. I find it a pretty interesting film. But I don't really want to hear what Roman Polanski has to say about women's yeah. bodies after knowing that, which is part of what Rosemary's Baby is about. That's my issue. Rosemary's Baby is it about. seems to directly um, relate to yeah. something terrible he did. I mean, it's not... I don't know. It just seems like it's directly related. Like, it's like, what? The, no. Like, I don't... I don't know. Yeah. That's how and I so, draw line. Like, but I, it's a good point to mention the Polly Kid stuff too, because yeah, it's like, I, how does this, in the case of Tecumel, how does this maybe enforce some discriminatory beliefs that I have personally seen from OSR people, old school Renaissance people, and from that movement? Like, how does right. that maybe <laughs> reflect poorly there? How does that maybe amplify negative voices? That's that's a problem. I don't really see that happening with Lovecraft, thankfully. Yeah. It could, I don't know. There are some people, yeah, there's some people who are like, heck yeah, Lovecraft racism. I hear, I've never actually interacted with them. And that's one of those where like, you know, if they were at my table at Gen Con, I would ask them to to leave, right? That's not a simple one. That's not a difficult question. Um, But I think all of this does come back to the question of like, 
what do we want to engage with, right? And that sometimes I think it is really cathartic and really productive to decide to engage with mm. uh, difficult material. But like we tried to open both these podcasts by saying, here's the content warning. Please make sure you're on board with this, right? And that's what I always want to do is to check in with my players, um, to check in with like everybody I'm dealing with and make sure that we're on the same page, that we're okay talking about this. And that like, if we're not, we need to take a break. We need to calibrate, right? And um, so I think we'll probably do a whole future show about like dealing with difficult topics mm -hmm. on purpose. But these two are about the fact that like difficult topics are here in role-playing games, whether we want them to be or not. And part of being like a responsible player, a responsible game master is recognizing that right and and like if you're going to be a movie person right you need to know if you recommend chinatown to people and they go on google and look up you know the director they're gonna right. find that story um and that's kind of on you if you I, yeah you have to them. disclose that like hey yeah. by the way yeah if you don't it it kind of ref it reflects poorly on you and it can really make the the your I guess you could say your audience feel like they've been tricked almost or they've been like I don't know. Yeah. I mean and I I, I think that's important because like especially in horror games there is a really strong element of trust involved, right? That like you have to pretend um like you just have to extend that thing of like I'm gonna let myself be like startled or surprised or like hurt a little bit within mm. the confines of the game, but like your job as a GM is not to abuse that trust, right? It's to, you know, uh, to, to scare them within the limits they've set as a player too. Um, but you have to just kind of constantly monitor those limits, and occasionally you'll mess up. Like I've had moments that I wouldn't do again in games that were like way too emotionally raw, but it's because like I hadn't been to therapy. I didn't know the exchange I was having like was uh, uh, reenacting like oh. abusive comments. Right. And once I did know that it's not the kind of thing I would do. Right. But like it's stuff that's come up in games. I'm happy that I've had like uh, good players who could talk about stuff like that. And that they're like, that was a messed up thing. Didn't do it on purpose. We talked about it, and I think everybody moved forward. But I think you've got to be aware. You've got to check in, and that's my like ultimate uh, line on that. Is that like RPGs are not therapy, even though they have therapeutic moments in them? Yeah, I uh, see. I've always struggled with session zero and that type of thing. Um, I think because I come from such a a not. Uh, <laughs> A structured background with RPGs, as I've mentioned in our intro episode, just being like, I'm going to do this. And like, you know, there was no, and obviously people weren't talking about Session Zero, I don't think so much back in like 2000. Uh, maybe they were. Um, so that that's an important topic to me. Um, you had some idea. I don't think we have anything else for this. I mean, there's a lot else for this, but I think we're about out of time. It's like we've gone on for quite a while. Um, you're right. What were you thinking for next time? So for next time, um, 
I don't know what the next exact show will be. Uh, we have a lead on uh, one of my friends who was interested in guest starring to talk about how game masters can get in the way of their own game or like how the rules can get in the way of their game, mm. which I think will be a great topic. I don't know if that'll be the next one though. Uh, and we've mentioned like, we're familiar with a bunch of different systems ranging from like Apocalypse World to Troika to other stuff. I think it'd be cool to do some system zooms. Um, and so, like, I, I do think we should shift gears a little off these heavy topics for next yeah, time. Yeah, I don't really want to continue with this. I think we should go a little lighter for next time. I, I, you guys can tell us in, you know, send us an email or whatever, what you want to hear. I don't, personally, I, I don't want to just keep being like, and then the terrible thing happened. Because I already felt that way with crazy school stuff and playing Elden Ring. Because Elden Ring, I'm just going to say... It, I feel it's like it's downer. darker than Dark Souls is. I don't feel like Dark Souls is that dark, but I feel like Elden Ring is is almost like grim dark. But I don't know. Mm. Not maybe not visually. I don't like Caleb. I'll say that. <laughs> but... <laughs> oh boy! I love Caleb. <laughs> I'm glad. To, I think I'm done with it. Pretty much everything. There's like so one thing I have to do there. But. Uh, yeah. I think that speaks to how we have the different perspectives. I love all the like oh. gross biological mushrooms. I think my favorite is so Lumia. happy. But, yeah, that is for the good. southern island. But yeah, yeah. anyway. Um, okay. Yeah, so you know, closing out. I guess just you know, be in contact with people. Talk about what is good for your game and what isn't, and we'll see you next time about something <laughs> now you can reach us you can email yeah. us at gamemastersprism at gmail.com and you can say um, you, you can say whatever you can say hey that episode really helped me deal with that or I think you missed something here or whatever um, you can reach us on twitter at GM's pr- GMS Prism Podcast uh, the email is just gamemastersprism it's no punctuation at gmail Yep. If you think I, in particular, missed something, uh, you can let me know at at, uh, Mr. Underscore Doctor Underscore Spooky on Twitter. Um, Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter in several forms, but you can reach me at at Sater Elfame, which is at S-A-T-Y-R-E-L-F-H-E-I-M. And we also have an Instagram, uh, Game Masters Prism, same as a Gmail, no uh, punctuation or anything. And we are on Google, uh, Anchor, Spotify. Are we on Apple at this point? I'm not there. Not yet. I also I, had yeah, a crazy I, amount at work. Uh, so I think we might have to rein in the swearing oh, okay. for Apple. Yeah, I, I heard you had I some uh, stuff to do. But... Uh, well, it's it my happens. fault. Uh, my work is going to get crazy soon, I think. But we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, listen to listen to the other episodes. Yeah. I really i i'm I think one of my favorite one. I, I think my favorite one we did is the the intro to RPGs one. So I I always recommend that one. It's much lighter than these topics because it's just like remember when you could go to the video store and get things were so much better back then. Totally different from what we're talking about now, right? You could buy a role-playing game for a nickel, a shiny wooden nickel. Uh, yeah. 
And and by all means, like if there's something you'd really like us to talk about, hit us up right on Twitter or on the Gmail. Um, we're open to suggestions too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, that's it for me. I am done. I'm I'm getting out of here. <laughs> all right, have I'm a good Good night, Everybody. all. Keep on rolling the dice and be wise in your rolling. Be kind. Be kind. Have a good one. Good night.